If only father could see us now. Napoleon and Joseph Bonaparte were grinning like they had just robbed a bank as they exited the carriage. Napoleon was wearing crimson robes and a golden wreath crown. It was coronation day, and onlookers were standing on their tippy toes to catch a view of him as he entered Notre Dame. Inside, the best men and women of France stood at attention. The Pope had been waiting for hours. The music started and Napoleon strode through Notre Dame's great front doors and toward his destiny. He took his position at the front. Prayers were recited, songs were sung, and he was blessed by the Pope. And then he did one of the most remarkable acts in human history. He picked up his imperial crown and placed it on his own head. It was a statement of the ultimate self-made man. No one had the power to crown him other than him. He had made himself an emperor. What king or bishop could possibly claim the authority to confer his crown? I can only imagine what Napoleon must have felt as the ceremony closed, clothed and crowned like a Roman emperor of old in France's most holy cathedral, as the people cried out in unison, long live the emperor. Thirty years earlier, the boy Napoleon played in the streets of Ajaccio, Corsica, an island a hundred miles off the southern coast of France. Corsica wasn't anyone's idea of the center of the world, and no one imagined that anyone from Corsica could take over the world, least of all, this boy Napoleon. He was the second son of a second-rate family. He was bright, but so were his brothers, and so were hundreds of other boys. I don't think this boy had any inkling either. All he knew is that he liked to hang out around the French garrison station there. He liked to listen to their stories and their jokes. He liked to look at their weapons and their uniforms. And as he walked those streets, and as he stared out at the ocean, he must have known that his destiny wasn't here, that it lay somewhere out there, beyond the waves. I'm gonna show you how great I am. This was our tiny tower. I just wanna say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Hello, and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. Today, we are going to explore the story of Napoleon Bonaparte, the French general, emperor, and reformer. This is the story of the most dramatic climb to power of all time. It's the story of how one man went from being a nobody, the second son of a second-rate family in a second-rate province of a second-rate country, to becoming the emperor of the greatest European empire that had been seen in a thousand years. I love the story of Napoleon for a few reasons. The first is his absolute brilliance and the volume of his accomplishments. I want you to think of what you would consider to be a successful life. What do you hope to do before you die? And maybe start a successful business. How about found a university? Both of those would be pretty big, right? What about becoming president? That would be quite the accomplishment. Well, Napoleon went from being a penniless refugee in a foreign country to becoming emperor of the largest empire since ancient Rome. It stretched from Spain to Poland, from Denmark to Italy. He won 54 of his 62 battles, despite almost always being outnumbered. He pioneered new military innovations. He reformed the legal code in France and directly supervised or inspired the same process in a number of other nations. He founded multiple universities and schools spanning two continents. He modernized the French bureaucracy, founded two newspapers, wrote novels and political propaganda. The volume of his accomplishments is truly mind-blowing. So I wanted to see and learn how could someone do so much in just one lifetime? 
The other reason to study him is that Napoleon lives during an interesting time in history. On the one hand, the Napoleonic era is very modern. You know, you look at what he was doing all day, and most days it was making plans, having meetings, and reading and writing letters. And what does a modern CEO do? Well, mostly they make plans, have meetings, and read and write emails. Some of his greatest innovations were in the very modern areas of supply chain and organizational structure. He had the first modern chief of staff like a CEO would have. So when you listen to his life story, it's very easy to project him forward and compare him to guys like Warren Buffett or Elon Musk. The military historian Marvin Van Creveld called him the most competent human being who ever lived. And I think that very well could be accurate. So there are a ton of very practical lessons to learn from Napoleon and the way he worked. But at the same time, you know, he's like a Roman or Greek Persian emperor of old. You know, this is a guy who's conquering a vast multinational empire. And by the way, this wasn't exactly normal. It was extraordinary at the time that he did it. It was a time of balance of power and checks and balances and modernization. People were completely unprepared for the phenomenon of Napoleon and what he accomplished was extraordinary in his own time. Stephen England is a historian and biographer of Napoleon, and he described the atmosphere of Napoleon's tomb as, quote, the awe-evoking sense of possibility. And that is one thing that I want to get across. Anything is possible. Yes, you can. This is someone who should not have been able to do what he did, and yet he did. So I think when you look at the story of Napoleon, it's a story where, yes, you can get concrete takeaways about how to work more effectively, but it's also a story about how to achieve something grand and greater than anyone can imagine. The other question about this episode is why redo it? The very first episode of How to Take Over the World was about Napoleon, and I think it holds up. I don't like hearing the sound of my own voice very much, but even I like going back and listening to that first episode from time to time. But there are a couple of reasons I want to redo it. The first is that it's been five years, and I think I'm just a better podcaster now, so you know I want to give Napoleon the full treatment that he deserves. I'm going to leave that episode up, so if you want to go, you can still go back and listen to it and compare it to this one and kind of see how things have changed between now and then, how I've changed as a podcaster, how my thoughts have evolved over the years. And the second reason is that I have continued to do some research on Napoleon, and so I wanted to incorporate some of that. I've read a few more books since I did that episode. And then the third reason is that the movie Napoleon by Ridley Scott just came out, the one with Joaquin Phoenix, and I thought that movie really missed a mark and gave a distorted, almost inverted picture of who Napoleon was. You can go back a couple episodes and listen to my review of the movie if you want to hear my thoughts on it. But, you know, I wanted to not just leave it at a critique. I wanted to give my version of who I think Napoleon really was. Not just because I want to correct the movie, but because I think that truly understanding who Napoleon was can help you improve and hopefully inspire you. And so I kind of want to be, I guess, the movie that I wish that movie was. Or at least I want to hopefully make you in some way feel the way I wish that movie had made me feel. So that's why I'm redoing it. And I think it's still worth listening to, even if you've listened to that first episode. This one is going to be quite a bit more in depth than that one was. Before we get started, a quick shout out to my sources. They were Napoleon, A Life by Andrew Roberts, Napoleon, Soldier of Destiny by Michael Browers, The Napoleonic Wars by Alexander Mikibaridze. Sorry, it's a tough name. Swords Around a Throne, Napoleon's Grand Armée by John Elting, The Mind of Napoleon by J. Christopher Harold, and Napoleon, How He Did It by Baron Fane. I'll break down all those sources in my end notes episode, but if you're looking for a good single volume biography of Napoleon, you probably want to pick up the Andrew Roberts biography. So with all that out of the way, with all that said, let's get into it. This is part one, 
the rise of Napoleon. But first, I want to give a quick shout out to today's sponsor, Tamba. Napoleon was a master of branding. And in 2024, having great branding means having a great web presence. And the guys at Tamba.digital can help you do exactly that. Tamba is an end-to-end digital product agency, which means they build beautiful, high-quality apps, web apps, websites, you name it. They've built some really exciting stuff from top nutrition sites in the world to some of the biggest names in finance and technology right now. I know a bunch of people who have worked with them and been very happy with the results, and I wouldn't recommend them if I wasn't working with them myself. And as weird as it sounds, working with them has actually been fun. They are meticulous and very organized. They ask all the right questions and get to the core of the problem and then systematically build the solution from the ground up. So uh, this website that they've built for me is amazing. (laughs) You can go to takeoverpod.com to see it and um, you can just see the quality of their work. And it's, it's amazing. It's really leveled up my web presence. So I can't recommend them highly enough. If you need any sort of digital product, again, an app, a web app, a website, work with Tamba. You won't regret it. Check them out at tamba.digital and let them know that I sent you. Again, that is tamba, T-A-M-B-A dot digital. A comet appeared in the skies over Ayaccio on the day that Napoleon was born, on August 15, 1769. This isn't a metaphor, this is literally true. One also appeared over St. Helena shortly before he died in 1821. Your feelings about the supernatural and the divine and your opinion on Napoleon will decide what you make of this fact, but I do find it striking, to say the least. So on the one hand, Napoleon's life was marked by destiny from its very first moments. But on the other hand, Napoleon had a very normal, almost idyllic life as a child, surrounded by a loving family and a close-knit community. His parents created a cocoon for him, where he was loved, cherished, and doted on, but all around that cocoon, everything was in flux. His father had been on the losing side of a complicated struggle between Corsican independence and French rule. The position that he took was not only the losing side, but was extremely unpopular with the community from which he came. And so French rule on Corsica had left the family on the outside looking in. Down, but not quite out. But like I said, Napoleon's parents do a pretty good job of protecting him from all of this and giving him a happy and carefree childhood. Napoleon was an energetic and mischievous child. He loved to sneak out and go spend time with the French troops stationed in Iaccio, gawking at their arms and uniforms and listening to their stories and jokes. He was considered quick and intelligent, though not exceptionally so. One of the things that's interesting to think about is are these kinds of people destined for greatness? Are they just born to take over the world or do they develop that ability? And at least in Napoleon's case, it seems it was at least somewhat developed. And if you read the firsthand accounts from his family members, everyone thought he was smart, but no one had any idea that he would be an emperor or some sort of great man who would affect history. I mean, no one on Corsica really had those kind of dreams. He's also somewhat short, though once again, not remarkably so. You've probably heard of the Napoleon complex, which is supposed to be when someone overcompensates for being short. Well, Napoleon was about 5'7", which is pretty average for the time. It's like being 5'10 today. Like, yeah, maybe it's a little short but you're probably not going to develop a complex around it. And it's unlikely that it's going to become your entire identity. And it was not his entire identity. In fact, it wasn't even really a part of his identity. Napoleon's mother, Leticia, was widely considered the most beautiful woman on the island. And she put that beauty to use. When the French initially took over Corsica, they wanted to kind of survey the island, give it a census, and categorize the people on the island. And so they were trying to determine who was a noble Corsican. 
And when the initial list of noble Corsican families was released, the Bonapartes were not on it. And this was a disaster because it meant that their children would not be entitled to a royal education in France. And they were left off for a good reason. They were kind of minor, very marginal nobility. So Leticia uses all of her beauty and charm to strike up a friendship with the French governor of Corsica and get their family added to the list of nobles. Some say that she struck up more than a friendship with this French governor of Corsica, though of course no one knows the truth of that relationship is lost to history. But the fact that she does this uh, entitles the Bonapartes to a royal education. The oldest son, Joseph, goes and studies law, but Napoleon, with his intense interest in soldiers and war, is sent to a military school in Brienne, France at age nine. It was a difficult time for Napoleon. Brienne is in eastern France, close to Switzerland. So Napoleon is going from one of the most warm and pleasant climates in the world to a very cold one. He's also going from a very convivial family atmosphere to a very strict military atmosphere. He has to try to learn French as quickly as he can, which he does, but he never loses his thick Italian accent. The language spoken in Corsica was an Italian dialect. As a non-Frenchman and a non-native French speaker, he is quite isolated at his boarding school. He's teased for his accent and for his family's poverty. And this teasing helps to encourage his Corsican nationalism. Like I said, his father had been in favor of Corsican independence. And so Napoleon, even though he's an aristocrat, getting an aristocratic education is something of a liberal, even though he's in a quite reactionary environment. At school, he begins to write essays and novels about Corsican independence, and he becomes uh, an anti-colonialist. As a student, Bonaparte is bright, if not quite brilliant. The remarks on his referral papers upon graduating read, quote, he has always been distinguished for his application in mathematics. He is fairly well acquainted with history and geography. And he did have a very solid understanding of mathematics, of physical sciences, as well as some of the more liberal arts of history and literature and the classics and geography and all of this. Napoleon graduated in the bottom half of his class. But this may be a bit deceptive because, always impatient, he had graduated two years early. And this is one of the themes of Napoleon's life. He had this great impatience, which was born of his obsession. He had trouble suffering fools or slogging through things which he found boring. But his rushing through school had an important impact on his future. The last sentence on his referral papers read, this boy would make an excellent sailor. And this wasn't just an offhand comment. Napoleon wanted to join the Navy. The French Navy was seeing a surge in interest and investment because of their recent performance in the American Revolutionary War. It was also seen as a more meritocratic branch of the military where bright young men with few connections could rise to the top. However, because Napoleon had rushed through his military training, he hadn't spent enough time in school to be commissioned as a naval officer. So he had to choose a different path. He chose the artillery for reasons similar to those that he was interested in the Navy. Compared to the cavalry and to the infantry, it didn't have a long history and therefore wasn't full of well-connected sons of aristocrats who could expect promotions just because of their family. At this time, the artillery had a nascent snobbery toward the other branches of the army. They were the thinkers. Effective artillery command required strong abilities and training in mathematics and science, it tended to attract smart, technocratic-minded officers. As opposed to, if you think about the cavalry, uh, they tended to attract, you know, swashbuckling adventure seekers. And also, old-timey aristocrats. You know, this was a branch of the military that harkened all the way back to the Crusades. And so you had a lot of these really old families going into the cavalry. You also had these really old families going into the infantry, because this was uh, sort of the core 
of the army. So if you were a well-connected aristocrat, you know, who, who maybe had married into the royal family at some point and had visions of coming up in the court and being close to the king, uh, the infantry was a good place from which to do that. The artillery was a, a stark contrast to that, where someone like Napoleon, who's from very minor nobility, from the fringe of, of the nation, has a possibility of rising up and making a name for himself. Immediately after graduating, Napoleon gets some pretty minor postings in eastern France. France wasn't actively at war. It might be boring in that way, but luckily he was posted under a very forward-thinking and innovative artillery commander from whom he could learn a lot, and he did. He took the opportunity to learn as much as he could. But he has something else occupying his time. In 1785, the same year Napoleon graduates from military school, his father dies, probably from stomach cancer, which is the same thing that would eventually kill Napoleon. Though he wasn't the oldest, Napoleon really takes leadership of the family. For the next few years, he is constantly taking leave in order to go back to Corsica and settle the family's affairs and attend to their many business interests. And this is his life for the next four years. He graduates when he is 16, and nothing of note really happens until he is 20 years old, when, in 1789, the French Revolution breaks out in Paris. Napoleon was, by virtue of his upbringing, and also by virtue of his natural temperament, a liberal. He immediately instinctively sided with the French Revolution. He was a vocal supporter of the French Revolution, and in the long run, it would provide a lot of opportunities for him. But in the short run, it created confusion. The Corsican independence movement had been a liberal movement. Its founder, Pasquale Paoli, was a Freemason and a liberal who had asked Jean-Jacques Rousseau to write the constitution of a new independent Corsica. But the French Revolution was universalist. It took hold in France, but it spoke not of Frenchmen, but of the rights of man. And the French revolutionaries saw no reason why the revolution should stay contained to French borders. So they were not in support of Corsican independence. They wanted Corsica to remain a part of France and a part of this universal brotherhood of man. And so even though the Bonapartes had a long history of being involved in the Corsican independence movement, Napoleon and his family decide to stay loyal to the revolution and to France. Napoleon returned to Corsica to help navigate the revolution, while his brothers, Joseph and Lucien, who at the time were more connected than he was, stayed in southern France, where they were public intellectuals who wrote and spoke in favor of some of the more radical elements of the French Revolution. Between 1789 and 1793, Napoleon went back and forth between his postings in France and Ajaccio in Corsica five times, with a six-month stay in Paris somewhere in the middle. So the leader of Corsican independence, this guy Pasquale Paoli, had been sent into exile by the French when, when they kind of ended this independence movement. But in 1790, Paoli returns from exile to Corsica to a hero's welcome. And initially, he and the Bonapartes, especially Napoleon, get along very well. It's actually not clear kind of where he's going to come out on this question. You know, they're starting to think, well, can we have some sort of local rule within the French system? It seems like there could be compromises and, and everyone can win. But eventually cracks begin to emerge. Pauli was more concerned with Corsican independence than he was with the ideals of the French Revolution. And so he begins to distance himself with French rule. He first broke with Lucien and Joseph, and Napoleon tried to maintain good relations with Pauli, even though his family was starting to distance themselves. 
But in the end, these differences are irreconcilable. Napoleon was actually with Pauli and his faction at their headquarters when news arrived that his brother Lucien had denounced Pauli to the French government. This is not the place you want to be when that news comes. Pauli declares the Bonapartes outlaws. The fact that they were outlaws meant death on sight for any of the Bonapartes who were found by Pauli's men. Napoleon flees for his life. There's actually a dramatic scene. You know, Napoleon is kind of milling around when uh, some of his more distant relatives come out and are like, dude, you got to get out of here. We just got some news that Lucien has denounced Pauli. This is not going to be good for you. And Napoleon just takes off and is chased by these people who are trying to kill him. So he manages to get kind of up in the hills and he's hiking through these hills of Corsica, going from safe house to safe house of, you know, friends and people he knows that are on his side. But he is eventually caught and thrown into a temporary prison. His captors plan to execute him. But as they wait for the man in charge to approve the execution, Napoleon is broken out of jail by two of his supporters. However, the jailers see them making this escape and chase after them. They are eventually chased down by Pauli's men and caught. One of Pauli's men puts a gun to Napoleon's temple and shouts, death to the country's betrayer. But before he can pull the trigger, more of Napoleon's men have heard the cries and surround them with guns drawn. So they take him back into their custody and then help him navigate the Corsican backcountry until he can finally make his way back to the city Ayaccio. At the same time, again, all of the Bonapartes are outlaws. And so his mother and sisters and younger brother had a similarly harrowing escape running from safe house to safe house at night while Pauli's assassins followed in hot pursuit. In the end, Napoleon is able to gain passage on a frigate and directs it where to go in order to collect the rest of his family as well. They washed up on the shores of France a few days later, completely penniless, with nothing to their name. In a matter of days, they had gone from mildly prosperous minor nobility to penniless refugees in a foreign country where most of them didn't even speak the language. The Bonapartes were going to have to start over. Since Napoleon was stationed in southern France, he could help the family get settled in the area around Marseille, where at first they had to work as domestic servants in order to make ends meet. Napoleon is not really in charge of much, but now he has the opportunity to engage in some actual action. After the French Revolution, France had declared war on some of the other powers in Europe, and in addition to that, There were constant rebellions from royalists, people who wanted to see the king back in charge. So Napoleon's first assignment is to help put down rebellions in southern France. So as he does this, as he's seeing combat for the first time, he also keeps up his writing. And even more importantly, he is not the only Bonaparte who is making moves. His brothers Lucien and Joseph continued to be committed Jacobins. Jacobins were essentially the furthest left of the supporters of the revolution. And they continued to rise in the French revolutionary government. And so Napoleon's writing, plus his brother's connections, finally end up getting Napoleon an interesting assignment. Some French royalists in the southern port city of Toulon had thrown out the French garrison and invited the British to occupy the city. The British were holding it with around 20,000 men and 70 ships. The French were besieging the city to try and take it back, but with nothing to show for it after months of effort. Toulon was one of the best defended ports in Europe. It would have been a tall task to take it even for the best of men, and France did not have the best of men trying to take Toulon. They were mostly local volunteers with no military training, and their commanders had absolutely no experience in siege warfare. And so this French force besieging Toulon was kind of just sitting there and waiting, but waiting was going to have no impact because obviously Toulon is a port, 
and the British could just sail supplies in at will. The whole effort was just poorly organized, poorly funded, chaotic, lazy, incompetent. And this is when a fellow Corsican, who was high up in the French government, remembers the Bonapartes. And so he says to them, hey, don't you guys have a brother who's an artillery commander? We could really use someone like that at Toulon. And so Napoleon is given command of the artillery at Toulon. And there is an immediate turnaround. Two of Napoleon's defining attributes were activity and decisiveness. And that is two of the biggest changes you see immediately. Napoleon is decisive in deciding how the French will attempt to break through the defenses at Toulon. And he's exceptionally energetic and active in carrying out his plan. The first thing he does is come and take a look at his cannons and says, this is it. It's pitiful. It's a ragtag group of cannons and the horses who pull them are poorly trained and the men don't really know what they're doing. And there's not nearly enough gunpowder or cannonballs. It's like an F on every single element when it comes to artillery. And rather than accepting these limitations and saying, well, I guess I'll make the best of a bad situation. He decides that this isn't enough. So he starts doing everything in his power to get better supplied. He starts riding back to Paris where the government is based and saying, hey, we need more of everything, more gunpowder, more cannons, more horses. And he keeps pestering them for more stuff all throughout the siege. But realizing that this might take a while, he also sends men out to the countryside and has them go to nearby towns and see what they can scrounge up. And they do find a few extra cannons that way. He takes cannons from city walls of nearby cities that aren't currently seeing combat. He takes control of a foundry and starts manufacturing more ammunition himself. And, you know, he's just, he's doing everything. To me, this goes to the idea of questioning the assumptions. You know, so many people come into it and say, these are the rules of the game. Here's what I can affect, and here's what I can't. And great leaders like Napoleon just don't put anything in the latter category. Like, they never accept that there are things that they can't change, that there are limitations to the game. They see an infinite game where all of the rules are malleable. And that's what Napoleon does. You know, he figures if anything is working against me, I can change it in some way, shape, or form. And all these little things work. I'm reading from the Andrew Roberts biography now. He says, quote, The result of all this hectoring, bluster, requisitioning, and political string pulling was that Napoleon put together a strong artillery train in a very short order. By the end of the siege, Napoleon commanded 11 batteries, totaling nearly 100 cannon and mortars. Well, at the same time as all this, he's training his men and using a very hands-on, personal style of leadership. One of the generals, who's in charge of the siege overall, who has supervision over Napoleon, wrote, quote, I always found him at his post. When he needed rest, he lay on the ground wrapped in his cloak. He never left his batteries. And that was one of Napoleon's skills, his ability to really focus on and obsess over a problem. This isn't some commander who's telling other men what to do during the day and then enjoying a nice meal with the other officers at night. He's obsessed with getting this right. He's working on getting this cannons ready day and night. And when he gets so tired, he can't work anymore. He just pulls his cloak around him and sleeps there on the spot by the cannons. Imagine if you're one of the men working under Napoleon, you know, you can't work fewer hours than the boss. So this energy that he brings to his job really raises the morale of the men working under him as well. Well, once Napoleon had his battery in order, he turns his eye toward an actual attack. And what is needed isn't terribly complicated strategically. There are two high points in the city of Toulon. And if you control them, you have the ability to fire your cannons down on the rest of the city. This is obvious to everyone. So the British have heavily fortified these two high points. Napoleon plans, organizes, and launches multiple assaults on these hills. And true to form, 
he personally leads the attack at great risk to himself. At one point, his horse is shot out from under him. Another time, he is stabbed through the thigh by a pike. In another instance, one of the men manning the cannons is shot. So Napoleon picks up his gloves and starts helping to fire the cannon himself. He exposes himself to a lot of danger, but this inspires his men. You can imagine if you're a soldier and you've got some commander saying, go take that fort, but he's not willing to go himself, you'd be more skeptical than with a commander who is leading the charge and there with you. And so with these multiple assaults, Napoleon is eventually able to take these forts. And once they've taken the forts, they start firing heated cannonballs down on the British Navy. They destroy a number of ships and completely eject them from Toulon. As sort of an exclamation mark, one of the cannonballs hits the gunpowder storage on one of the ships and it explodes in a giant fireball. The siege of Toulon ends up being a huge victory for the French and Napoleon is seen by the government as something of a hero. They love the guy. And so they make him a general at the very young age of 24. Now, you would think that this is where Napoleon's career really starts to take off, but it's not quite that simple. Napoleon and his brothers were, as I said, considered Jacobins. They were associated with the most radical elements of the French Revolution. So they are friends with the Robespierres, the guys who are guillotining everyone and really mismanaging France and driving it into the ground uh, through the French Revolution. Well, this is the time when people have finally had enough of the Jacobins and their rule. They call it the terror. And so they throw them out. The government is kind of overthrown. I mean, it's still a, a leftward revolutionary government, but there are bloody reprisals. And now Jacobins are the ones who are being rounded up and guillotined. And in fact, Napoleon himself is arrested, jailed, and sentenced to death. His sentence is commuted, and obviously he isn't guillotined. But at the tender age of 25, he comes this close to death. And so he lives, um, but as a consequence of his association with this government that is now out of power, he's allowed to stay in the army. He's still an artillery officer, but he's basically demoted and sidelined. You know, Just when he's starting to come up, he has this big victory at Toulon, he makes a name for himself in, in the government in Paris. They say, oh, this is a talented guy. And now uh, he's a nobody again. You know, nobody wants to be associated with him. His political patrons are gone. He has nobody to help him get good appointments. It looks like things are just at a dead end. He gets appointed to the topographical bureau in Paris. So uh, he works on maps, gathering, you know, topographical climate and other information for generals in the field. He's basically, you know, gathering intel and making maps. And of course, Napoleon being Napoleon, he uses it as an opportunity to learn. And he does. He, he learns a lot of things that will help him later on. But that's not the reason that he was given the assignment. He was given the assignment as a way to sideline him. And Napoleon is bored to tears. He's gotten a taste of victory and of glory and of real combat. And now he's behind a desk doing nothing all day. He doesn't really have great prospects for getting ahead. And at this point in his life, Napoleon exhibits obvious signs of depression. This is the one time in his life where he is described as dirty and unwashed. He's reclusive. He's a little sluggish. He's directionless. But in the middle of this deep depression, he once again makes a very convenient friendship that ends up helping him out. That friend is a man by the name of Paul Barat, and he saw something special in Napoleon and is lucky for both of them that he did, because as you may have noticed during this time, governments are coming and going quite quickly in Paris. Nothing seems to last. Every government seems unstable inherently, and every government really is unstable. I mean, as soon as someone comes to power, someone else begins plodding behind their back. And on October 5th, 
1795, a group of rebels numbering about 5,000 took over a few blocks of downtown Paris. The government realizes a little too late that this uprising is serious and that they are in danger of being overthrown. And so Barat, who is high up in the government, turns to Napoleon and tasks him with saving the government. Well, Napoleon flies into action. The first thing he does is ask where the cannons are. Well, stupidly, they're not in Paris. They're a few miles outside. So Napoleon sends out his cavalry and tells them to ride as fast as they can and bring the cannons into Paris immediately. They take off and get there to retrieve the cannons just before the rebels do. And they bring the cannons back to Paris. And this is one of the moments that, looking back, could have changed everything. I mean, the cavalry literally got there within minutes of the rebels. If they're 15 minutes later, there's a chance that the Napoleonic saga never occurs. When it came to the choice between extensive planning and immediate action, Napoleon always chose immediate action. And in this case, it saved him. Now, to understand Napoleon's mindset with what is going to happen next, you have to understand that he'd actually been there at the Tuileries Palace when the king was taken at the beginning of the French Revolution. And the king had refused to let his men fire on the mob because they were his subjects, and he didn't want to shoot his own subjects. Well, for his kindness, he had his head chopped off, and his personal bodyguards were massacred. And Napoleon isn't about to let that happen again because he's on the government's side now, and understandably, he wants to keep his head attached to his body. And so Napoleon sets up his cannons. He's got some soldiers, but not as many as the rebels do. And so he's got to make this decision. The same one that the king had to make. Do I fire on French citizens? And he does. He has the cannons loaded up with canister shot. You think of cannons as firing cannonballs, but at close range, you could basically use them as shotguns. Instead of loading a cannonball, you load a canvas bag packed with tiny metal balls. It was informally known as grape shot because these tiny cannonballs were about the size of grapes. And at short range, it was just devastating. Instead of the area of one cannonball, it could wipe out an entire swath of people. Well, legend has it that Napoleon says as this mob is advancing toward him, quote, give them a whiff of grape shot. It's likely he never actually said that, but it's quite poetic and it does reflect some of the realities that Napoleon believed about warfare. He later did say, quote, if you treat the mob with kindness, these creatures fancy themselves invulnerable. If you hang a few, they get tired of the game and become as submissive and humble as they ought to be. His viewpoint was, it's better to be very harsh and kill some people at the beginning of an insurrection than to let it carry on and turn into a full-on war in which a bunch of people are going to suffer and die. In any case, this whiff of grape shot works. Only about a half dozen of his men die, about 300 revolutionaries are killed, and this rebellion dissolves. The government is saved, and Napoleon is a hero. He is promoted once again. He's made a general of division. And this is the moment when Napoleon, you know, really does start his rise. He rents a fine house in central Paris. He starts to move in more elite circles. Things are really going in the right direction for him. He's brought into the inner circle of the highest level of government. It's at this time that he meets the woman that would go down in history as Josephine. Josephine was from the Caribbean island of Martinique. She was from a very old and aristocratic French family who could trace their ancestors back to famous crusaders. And her name, by the way, was actually not Josephine. Um, no one called her that. Napoleon had this habit, especially with women, of making up little nicknames for them. 
that, that no one else called them. He, he liked to have his own name for them. And he did this with her. Um, so most people called her Rose, I believe, which was one of her middle names. But no one called her Josephine. Uh, but it kind of stuck. <laughs> she became known as that uh, in her own time and throughout history. Her first husband, by whom she had two children, was a philanderer and eventually abandoned the family. He still supported the children until he was arrested and guillotined for royalist sympathies. Um, but he was a bad dude. And Josephine was also arrested and was scheduled to be guillotined. But within a matter of days of her execution, she was spared, uh, not because of anything she did, not because you know it was decided that she was not guilty, but the terrorist government of Robespierre was overthrown. So can you imagine? You're in jail. It's a couple days away from you being executed. And the only reason that you live is that the government is overthrown. So she gets out of jail, but with an incredible amount of trauma. She's got no husband, no money, because her family was pretty well ruined in the revolution. She's got no job, no prospects. She's in a pretty tough position. But what Josephine does have is good looks, a lot of charisma, and a very strong survival instinct. And so she starts a number of affairs with powerful men. She's essentially a courtesan, which is not a prostitute. Uh, it's nothing so transactional as that. But she provides companionship and, yes, intimate relations to powerful men. And in return, they look out for her, including financially. For Josephine, the life of a Parisian courtesan was keeping her and her children safe. But it was inherently unstable. She was always reliant on the affections of a man who had no legal obligations to her and in the eyes of the French society had no real moral obligations to her either. So if she could find a marriage, that would be a much better situation. Now, the problem was finding someone who could both provide for her in the manner that she was accustomed to. Remember, she came from a very wealthy background, but also would be willing to settle for a 32-year-old widow with two children at a time when this was not an attractive prospect. Enter Napoleon Bonaparte. He was just entering the world of high politics. He was a fairly wealthy general who was likely to get wealthier in the future. And he was in a vulnerable position. You know, he didn't feel comfortable moving in high society the way Josephine did. He was a foreigner who at this point in his life often felt uncomfortable in these sort of high society social settings. And so, you know, she could, I guess, prey on that a little bit, right? She might not have been attractive as a marriage prospect to other men who moved in those circles because, like I said, she was a little bit older. She was a widow. She had children. But for someone who was insecure and a little bit unstable himself in these settings, it made a lot more sense. So they meet at a social event, a social event. I mean, really what happens is Paul Barat, uh, this man who is Napoleon's patron and her lover, introduces them. Maybe he was kind of tired of this entanglement and uh, wanted to move past her. And so was kind of trying to pawn her off on someone else. So he introduces her to Napoleon and Napoleon falls head over heels in love with her. This is how he describes it. Quote, my character rendered me timid before women. Josephine is the first to have reassured me. She said flattering things about my military talents one day when I found myself placed next to her. After this, I followed her everywhere. I was passionately in love with her. So they marry relatively quickly. Her children initially did not like Napoleon, uh, but he was a devoted adoptive father to them. And they eventually came to be very close to him, especially the daughter, Hortense, but, but really both of them. The, the son's name was Eugène, and they had a great relationship as well. And so Napoleon and Josephine married in March of 1796. Napoleon was working furiously to plan a military campaign and was two hours late to his own wedding. 
Josephine wore a white dress and a tricolor sash, red, white, and blue, the colors of the revolution to demonstrate their patriotism, and Napoleon attached to it a medal with one word, destiny. And remember that, destiny, because that was one of the central ideas of Napoleon's life. He was obsessed with the idea of destiny. It was in many ways his God. The military campaign that Napoleon had been working on that made him late for his wedding was an invasion of Italy, which was currently occupied by the Austrians and their allies. After the revolution, France had declared war on a coalition of other powers, but the main enemies were Austria and Britain. And I won't get into a full history of why it was that the revolution declared war on all these people. Essentially, it was uh, that they thought they were declaring preemptive war, that they, they thought all these people were going to come in and try and interfere with France anyway. So they're trying to get the drop on them by declaring war early. So that was in 1792, but it is now 1796. And the war had gone back and forth. The French experienced some early successes, but since then they had seen a lot of setbacks. The main theater of war was in Southern Germany, but Napoleon and this guy, Osh, come up with a plan to break open the war by invading Austrian territory in Italy. It's really Napoleon's plan, and it's very audacious. Napoleon comes into command of the army of Italy, and he immediately sees that, like at Toulon, they're in really bad shape. You know, it's the same thing all over again. They're poorly equipped. They lack shoes and sufficient ammunition. The men are upset because they haven't been paid, and they haven't been moving or fighting for quite a while, so the men are complacent and lazy. It's a really bad situation all around. And what Napoleon does with the army of Italy is, in my opinion, one of the greatest examples of transformational leadership that I've ever seen. He's only 26, he's got very little experience, and he's supposed to take over this huge army that has a number of commanders who are nearly twice his age with way more experience than him. Some of them have been commanding armies for longer than he's even been alive. And he's supposed to come in and give them orders. And furthermore, he's got this post not through being a great battlefield commander, but by putting down a mob in Paris. And he's still considered really a political general who's getting this command because he's connected to the government in Paris. And that's maybe not the case, but that's the perception of him. So the generals who he's supposed to be commanding are not favorably disposed towards him. And this is a tough situation to be in where you have to kind of get credibility from nowhere, right? Especially if you're young. And this is what he does when he comes into command. Here's a quote from one of his fellow officers who was there when he first comes to take command. Quote, I can still see the little hat, his coat cut anyhow, and a sword which, in truth, did not seem the sort of weapon to make anyone's fortune. Flinging his hat on a large table in the middle of the room, he went up to an old general named Krieg, a man with a wonderful knowledge of detail and the author of a very good soldier's manual. He made him take a seat beside him at the table and began questioning him, pen in hand, about a host of facts connected with the service and discipline. Some of his questions showed such a complete ignorance of the most ordinary things that several of my comrades smiled. I was myself struck by the number of his questions, their order, and their rapidity. But what struck me still more was the sight of a commander-in-chief perfectly indifferent about showing his subordinates how completely ignorant he was of various points of a business which even the youngest of them was supposed to know perfectly. And this raised him a thousand cubits, in my opinion. So basically, this guy is saying, I loved him because he didn't have any pretense. Like, he didn't pretend to know any of this stuff. He just came in and asked the sort of very simple, obvious questions that people were supposed to know, but which gives him a, a very good idea of the state of the army. Here's another quote from a different officer of what happened as soon as he took command. Quote, 
He questioned us on the position of our divisions, their equipment, the spirit and active number of each corps, gave us the directions that we had to follow, announced that the next day he would inspect all the corps, and that the day after that, they would march on the enemy to give battle. It's such an interesting decision, I think, that his army is undersupplied and in bad spirits, and he says, okay, step one, we're going to attack the enemy right away. And that's not an obvious decision at all, right? You might think, you know, the first thing to do is first we need to get our supplies in order. We need to drill. We need to get more trained. Like we, you know, this is an army that's in shambles and we need to get out of those shambles first. And of course that's true. You know, at the same time, he is trying to address all those things. He's doing his usual thing. He's writing back to Paris saying, what is wrong with you guys? Send us more supplies, send us more clothing, send us more gunpowder. He is training the men. But, you know, if you wait for the conditions to be perfect, you're going to be waiting for forever. I think he believes in momentum. I think he's extremely impatient. He loved speed. He always wanted to move faster, surprise the enemy. He was obsessed with moving his army quickly. Um, but a big part of it was morale, the spirit of his troops. Napoleon later said, quote, in war, moral factors account for three quarters of the whole. Relative material strength accounts for only one quarter. Now, your first thought might be, well, wait a minute. How is marching these grumpy, underpaid, undersupplied soldiers right into battle going to improve their morale. If anything, it would decrease it. You know, if you're undersupplied, the last thing you want is to get shot at. Well, inactivity breeds inactivity. He wanted his troops to get used to marching and fighting. He didn't want his men to stay lazy. Uh, The other reason is that actually winning a big victory is going to solve a lot of these supplies. Northern Italy is to this day, one of the richest parts of Europe and of the world. And it's been one of the richest parts of the world for like 2000 years, maybe longer. Uh, It's just extremely fertile. Uh, Just the geographic circumstances are such that Northern Italy has always been incredibly wealthy. And so he figures, okay, if we can go and invade Northern Italy and win some battles, then we can loot some towns. We can get some money. We can pay our soldiers. There's plenty of shoes, plenty of clothing, plenty of gunpowder and cannonballs in Northern Italy if we can go get a victory there. And so that's the plan. March straight away, get a victory, and winning solves a whole bunch of issues. But it does create some problems in the meantime. You know, not everyone is happy about going to war in these circumstances. His first crisis actually comes when they are still in France preparing for the invasion. There's a minor mutiny of men because they haven't been paid in so long. And so a division of men uh, mutinies, says, we're not going. And this is potentially dangerous. During the Revolutionary Period, there was always the fear that an army could just full-on turn on their commanders and turn on the government. But even short of that, a mutiny would impact their combat readiness. It'd be impossible to conduct the invasion with people refusing to obey orders. And so Napoleon deals with it well. He treats these men severely. He disbands the mutinying units and scatters its men with other units. And the officers are dismissed from the service entirely and sent home. And this is kind of the perfect middle ground. He's firm with them, but he doesn't react wildly and execute them, which would have been kind of over the top. Uh, This is what Michael Brower's in his biography writes. He says, quote, there was no overreaction. No one was executed, but there was firmness, clarity, and authority in his very first act as commander. This reminds me of a saying in Latin, solvator in modo, firmatur in re, soft in what you do, firm in how you do it. And Napoleon's reaction wasn't exactly soft, certainly, but it wasn't as harsh as it could have been. And the most important element is firmness. There's this movie, uh, Buck, about a horse trainer. I highly recommend it. It's amazing, actually. One of the best leadership movies I've ever seen. 
And he uses that phrase a lot. Soft in what you do, firm in how you do it. So if he's trying to get a horse in a trailer, he'll take all the time in the world. He'll let the horse wait and get up the courage and move at its own pace. But there's no moving back. He's firm in moving it forward. So he's gentle in what he does. The horse can move at its own pace, but he's firm in how he does it. No moving back, only forward. He also talks about how you hold the reins when you lead a horse. If you ever jerk them, that's not firm. It actually shows weakness and panic. It shows you're freaking out. Firmness is leading a horse strongly, but steadily and smoothly, right? So anyway, I think you can see something of that in Napoleon's approach to punishment too. No sense of panic, just firmness and steadiness. His next crisis comes when the French government back in Paris makes some diplomatic mistakes. They try to strongman one of the Italian states, Genoa, into letting French troops pass through. Well, this is a major blunder because word leaks to the Austrians who immediately begin sending troops to head off any invasion. Like they, they get the word that the French are trying to find passage through Italy. So they realize, oh, they're trying to attack us here. And this was supposed to be a surprise attack. And now the element of surprise is gone. Napoleon does his best to remedy the situation. He writes to the Genoese to say, hey, never mind. Um, I don't know what they were talking about. That won't be necessary. No troops coming through the area. You know, um, that, what a mistake. I don't know what they were talking about. Even despite his late intervention, to some extent, the damage is done. Austrian troops are in the area, but Napoleon can still surprise them with the time and place of his attack. And that is exactly what he does. So Napoleon is facing a coalition of the Austrians and the Piedmontese. Piedmont is a region in northwestern Italy, and they are uh, allied with the Austrians. So together, these two forces outnumber Napoleon about 55,000 to his 40,000. And they have the advantage of defending as well. So they got more men and are in a better position. And Austria expects Napoleon to attack Genoa. That is the port city where the British are sailing in supplies to their Austrian and Italian allies. And it's also that city that we just mentioned that the French kind of tip their hand. So the Austrians definitely think that Napoleon is trying to go there. So you have the Austrians defending Genoa and their allies, Piedmont, are just a little bit to the west, ready to join and support the Austrians when necessary. And instead of going to Genoa, Napoleon does something completely unexpected. He marches right between the two armies. In a classical military strategy, this is the thing you most want to avoid. You don't want to be surrounded by your enemies. But Napoleon develops something called the strategy of the central position. And the idea is that if you have two enemy armies opposing you, you march directly between them into the central position, and then you occupy it turn and defeat one half of the army and then turn and defeat the other half. It's a dangerous gambit, um, but it works well for Napoleon because he is able to move his army so quickly. You can imagine if you don't move quickly enough, then yeah, you're just surrounded. But if you are able to move extremely quickly, then yes, you can occupy that central position and turn to your right and beat one half of the army, then turn to your left and beat the other half. So this is what he does. He first turns on the Piedmontese and through a series of rapid assaults, pushes them back until their lines are broken and armies scattered. And he does all this really before the Austrians can even react. When his troops are only 30 miles from the Piedmontese capital of Turin, they sue for peace and sign an armistice at the town of Churrasco. Napoleon leaves the Piedmont government intact, 
but they allow the French full freedom of movement and agree to help supply them. In the final treaty, they agree to hand over territory to France, including Nice and Savoy. Piedmontese had been fighting France for more than four years alongside the British and Austrians, and Napoleon had ended the conflict in three weeks. The spoils of the rich Italian countryside had also ended all of his army's supply issues. His men were now fully clothed, supplied, paid, and excited by the success that they had experienced. You know, in a matter of weeks, Napoleon had transformed a lethargic and destitute army into one of the finest fighting forces in Europe. He gave a speech and circulated it throughout the army, telling his men, quote, the two armies which lately attacked you in full confidence now flee before you in terror. The Austrians, seeing their allies defeated, retreated further east to regroup. And after taking a quick four-day break to resupply and prepare, Napoleon launches his attack on the Austrians. And they had been very confident to face him. But now, seeing that their allies are defeated and they don't have the numerical superiority anymore, they move back and retreat from him before he can engage them in a wide-scale engagement between the two armies. So he's pursuing as quickly as possible to try and score a decisive victory. And this part of northern Italy is full of rice fields that have turned to a muddy mess with the spring rains and the thousands of soldiers that are marching back and forth over them all the time. So it's a real triumph of will and logistical planning that Napoleon is able to move his men so quickly through this thick mud. In his hot pursuit of the Austrians, Napoleon is stopped at the town of Lodi. The town straddles a river and the Austrians are able to you know, retreat the main force of their army and hold back Napoleon with this small rear guard because there's only one bridge across the river. And so, as you can imagine, you can defend a single bridge with very few men. Just think about why. Uh, what would it be like to charge across that bridge? You got cannons set up at the end of it. And you're going to be marching right at them. So if you're at the front of the charge, you're basically marching into certain death, right? You're marching straight at cannons that are firing at you. If you make it through the cannon fire somehow, they've got infantry firing muskets at you. And if by some miracle you make it through the musket fire as well, then you're across the bridge and you're going to be charged by cavalry who are going to run you over and try and stab you. And if you somehow survive all of that, well, you haven't even started fighting yet, right? You've just made it to the other side of the bridge. You still have to fight a battle. So even though Napoleon has a big numerical superiority over this small Austrian force, uh, it's going to be really hard to get across this one little bridge. Well, at the Battle of Lodi, Napoleon is spectacular. He's on the ground in the action. He's personally leading attacks. He's helping to position and fire artillery. It's at this battle that he gains a new nickname. Here's this big, important general, and he's literally on the ground positioning cannons himself. So they call him Le Petit Corporal. A corporal is a very low-ranking officer, so they're jokingly saying he's like a corporal out here, moving around artillery himself. So Napoleon is out there on the ground positioning cannons, and it comes time to storm the bridge. He gives this great speech to his men and he whips them into a fury and leads them across the bridge. And they're thrown back a number of times in this brutal, bloody crossing. But eventually, they make it across and take the bridge. Napoleon later said of this battle, quote, I no longer regarded myself as a simple general, but as a man called upon to decide the fate of peoples. It came to me then that I really could become a decisive actor on our national stage. At that point was born the first spark of high ambition.
you wonder why it was this moment. And I think it's because he sees the look in his men's eyes. You know, for the first time, he sees how men respond to him. He sees that he can be a great leader, not just a logistical leader, not just a proactive, great organizer, but a true leader. You know, he, he sees that glint in their eyes. He gives them that speech and he sees how they're inspired. And he thinks, okay, maybe I'm someone who can really have an impact on the world. And with this change in attitude, you can really see Napoleon's self-belief starting to come through. He enters Milan, which is the largest city in Northern Italy. He sets up a new Republic based on the French model. He extracts 20,000 francs to send back to the government in Paris, doing a lot in the process to ease their finances and put the government on solid footing, and then sets off again in pursuit of the Austrians. And once again, they're retreating quite a bit in the face of Napoleon. They end up occupying a fortified city called Mantua. And Mantua is almost impossible to besiege because it is surrounded by a lake on three sides. And so it's just really difficult to get to. And so at this point, there's no clear force for him to attack. Um, and the French government sends orders to Napoleon to split his force, basically end the attack in Italy. He's supposed to give half of his troops to someone else, basically split the command. And then he'll take just half of his army and, and go into southern Italy and basically attack some of the Italian states there. And Napoleon does not respond well to this request. Uh, he writes back to the French government and he explains the situation and what he's trying to do. And he says, quote, for this, it is not only necessary to have one general, but he should have nothing to hinder him in his march or in his operations. I have concluded the campaign without consulting anyone. I should have accomplished nothing worth the trouble had I been obliged to reconcile my ideas with those of another. I have gained some advantages over very superior forces while in an almost destitute condition because I was persuaded of your entire confidence in me. My moves were as prompt as my thoughts. And, you know, that's probably true. He could not have used the strategy of the central position and, you know, avoided being encircled and attacked both half of the armies if he hadn't been able to fully command his army and have them obey his every command. And so he threatens to resign if he is not allowed to maintain unity of command. Napoleon is sometimes quoted as saying, it is better to have one bad general than two good ones. And while I'm not sure if he actually ever said that, it does perfectly correspond to what he believed. He thought unity of command was absolutely vital in war. And I think he was right. And that unity of command is vital in all sorts of pursuits. There has to be someone in charge. There has to be full unity of command in that person. They have to have ultimate decision-making power over everyone and the full confidence of everyone and their orders are obeyed. Uh, that's true in entrepreneurship. It's true in business. It's true in sports. I think it's true across all domains that there is great power in unity of command. And the French government responds well to this. They allow him to keep his unity of command and uh, they abandon their plans to have him split his army and bring in another commander and all this stuff. Now, I won't go through every single engagement. Uh, this is a long, pretty complicated war. But the pattern that happens again and again is the French are in the lowlands of northern Italy trying to maintain their siege of Mantua with limited men and resources. And there are mountains to the north of the French between them and Austria. And the Austrians... Um, repeatedly come down out of the mountains and try to surround Napoleon. And every time he uses the strategy of the central position to take on one half of the army and then pivot 
and take on the other half. And you're tempted to wonder why it is that they keep trying this if Napoleon keeps thwarting it. And the reason is it almost works every time. The most notable example uh, comes towards the end of the war at the Battle of Rivoli. And the Austrians actually do manage to surround Napoleon, like really surround him. He's got a pretty good sized army in front of him and a pretty good sized army uh, completely behind him, cutting off his retreat, like the worst position that you can be in in war, completely surrounded. And one of the Austrian officers later put it, quote, it only needed an advance of a few hundred paces, only the perseverance of a half an hour and the French army would be defeated. But it's at this moment when the French are surrounded that Napoleon calmly says to his officers, they are ours. The French are on a wooded hill. And so the Austrians on either side don't really know what's happening with the other half of their forces. And so Napoleon charges one side uh, with his cavalry, scatters them, and then turns on the Austrians in his rear and defeats them too. It's a remarkable victory. And again, one that demonstrates how right Napoleon was to reject the government's call to split his command. Unity of command was what allowed him to beat a superior force with superior positioning. The Austrians didn't totally know what a bad position they had Napoleon in because they didn't have communication with the forces on the other side. There's a hill in between them. They've got Napoleon sandwiched, but they don't know that they have him sandwiched. And so what does it do? It allows him to break out by just charging one side and then turn around and charging the other. And it's only his uh, unity of command that, that allows him to break out of that situation. Napoleon also disobeys the French government when he essentially wins in Northern Italy and has the Austrian army on the run. And the French government says, great, now go to Southern Germany where our armies are losing and reinforce them. But instead of reinforcing someone else's army, he chooses to chase down the fleeing Austrian army into Austria. And it's this move which forces the Austrians to come to the negotiating table. You know, he's within sight of the spires of Vienna, their capital. And so they freak out and they say, okay, <laughs> sounds like a great time to make peace. And so Napoleon and his Austrian counterparts sign a treaty at a place called Campo Formio, which greatly extends French territory and French influence and ends the war. Napoleon has now ended the first war of the coalition, the war that the revolutionary government started all the way back in 1792. And now he becomes a major celebrity back in France. That's probably underselling it. The French had been at war for five years, costing them hundreds of thousands of lives and costing millions of dollars with no end in sight. And in a matter of months, Napoleon scored victory after victory until he had completely driven the Austrians from Italy and marched on their capital, forcing them into a peace treaty on terms very favorable to the French. More than a celebrity, he was something of a national savior in France. Now, Napoleon doesn't go back to France immediately. He forms a number of republics in Italy on the Italian model. You know, most of these were monarchies previously, but now they have representative uh, liberal government in Northern Italy. Um, the biggest of these is called the Cisalpine Republic, which is a name that he gives it that harkens back to uh, Roman times, actually. You know, they talked about Transalpine Gaul and Cisalpine Gaul, which means on this side of the Alps and on the other side of the Alps, so now the French are kind of turning it on the Italians. But anyway, I think it is notable that he calls it the Cisalpine Republic because it means that he is thinking about Julius Caesar. It also gives him a chance for the first time to rule and to form an independent power base. So 
he sets up essentially what is a court in this town outside of Milan called Mambello. And, you know, technically this is like a democratic republic that he's set up, but that's just in name. Like he is essentially ruling Northern Italy as a monarch for a while. And what's so interesting is everyone in France doesn't even realize this is happening. He's got this independent power base of people who are loyal to him. He's setting up his cronies in key positions here in Northern Italy. And this is really good for him because, you know, he was still this guy, Paul Barat, who got him set up. Like he's still dependent on the patronage of other people back in Paris. But here in Italy, he's got his own thing going on and it's under the table. So people are underestimating him because they don't realize how much power he's building for himself. Now that the war of the first coalition was over, France was at peace with the rest of continental Europe, but England fought on. And so Napoleon's next move would be to try to strike a blow at them at England. With their powerful navy guarding the English Channel, an attack on England itself was not possible, it was out of the question. But the French government had come up with a plan to disrupt English trade by invading Egypt, because they were a crucial producer of cotton, which went into England's biggest industry, which was the textile industry. So that is the strategic reason for it. For the people at the top of the French government, the directory is what they were called, they have another motive, and that is that Napoleon is really popular. The directory is not very popular, and so there are some mild fears that this Napoleon guy could get political. And so sending him on this invasion of Egypt is a good chance to give him a mission that is exciting and prestigious while also getting him the heck out of Paris. And if the directory had another motivation, so did Napoleon. He had grown up reading Plutarch's Lives, which is a compilation of biographies of famous Greek and Roman conquerors and statesmen. Men like Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar, who both, famously, invaded Egypt on their way to achieving world domination. Napoleon was beginning to see himself as a peer with those men, as someone who was, to use his own words, called upon to decide the fate of peoples. And so Napoleon wants to take on this mission in part to try to match them. He assembles not only 40,000 soldiers, 10,000 sailors, and 400 ships, but hundreds of civilians, including artists, scholars, and scientists, in order to do scholarly and academic work and learn more about Egypt and bring some of that knowledge and new learning back to France. Externally, the French were tight-lipped about the intended location of the invasion force, but internally, Napoleon was making grand promises that Egypt would be transformed into a modern, high-functioning French-style republic, that they would quickly become great and glorious allies of France, and that this would serve as a valuable base for attacking England's territories in India as well. So Napoleon, with his eyes set on victory and glory, takes off from Toulon on June 1st, 1798. They actually stop in Malta on the way there, and listen to what Napoleon does in six days, just six days, on Malta. This is reading from the Andrew Roberts biography of Napoleon. Quote, in his six days in Malta, he replaced the island's medieval administration with a governing council, dissolved the monasteries, introduced street lighting and paving, freed all political prisoners, installed fountains and reformed the hospitals, postal service and university, which was now to teach science as well as the humanities. So you see this unbelievable energy of Napoleon that he completely reforms almost every element of the island in just six days. Now, that quote kind of skips over the fact that he also completely looted Malta. It had been ruled by a Catholic order, the Knights of St. John, and he evicts them. And any of the knights with French origins are repatriated back to France, and he takes all of their money. He loots the, their cathedrals, he loots paintings and relics, and anything valuable he takes. And this was important because it would provide valuable treasure for his campaign in Egypt. It would help fund this invasion. 
Leaving Malta, he sails the rest of the way through the Mediterranean, barely dodging British fleets as he does so. And when he makes his landing in Egypt, he aggressively marches up toward the Egyptian capital of Cairo, and it is only when they are on the doorsteps of the capital that the French army is finally opposed in force. The French and Egyptian forces meet near the Nile River, only a couple of miles from the pyramids of Giza, near the town of Mbabe. In Napoleon's pre-battle order of the day, he said to his men, quote, Soldiers, you came to this country to save the inhabitants from barbarism, to bring civilization to the Orient, and subtract this beautiful part of the world from the domination of England. From the top of those pyramids, 40 centuries are contemplating you. The Egyptians are led by their cavalry, who were for all intents and purposes still a medieval force. They spent most of the battle uselessly charging French squares, which easily defended themselves with musket fire. The Egyptian infantry were very poorly equipped and even more poorly trained. The Egyptian army disintegrates upon first contact with determined French attacks. The battle is over in about two hours. With his flair for publicity, Napoleon makes sure that this victory is remembered not as the Battle of Mbabe, but as the much more exotic-sounding Battle of the Pyramids. He scores a relatively easy victory at the Battle of the Pyramids. The gap in technology and professionalism made it very lopsided, and probably any French commander could have won the battle. But it was Napoleon's decisiveness that ensured it was so. Arriving in a foreign country where you don't speak the language, and you don't know the terrain as well as you might like, and you don't know where the enemy is, that might make a lesser general hesitate and move more slowly. And that might give the Egyptians time to disrupt their supplies, to call in some allies, to get in a more favorable position. But Napoleon was always decisive, and so his rapid marching towards Cairo is what allowed the Battle of the Pyramids to be the rapid success that it was. The French suffered about 300 casualties, and their enemies suffered about 10,000 casualties. The Mamluks, who were the ruling class of Egypt at the time, retreat up the Nile, where they would no longer challenge the French in open warfare, though they did carry out quite a vicious guerrilla campaign against French rule over the coming months. Napoleon took Cairo and wasted no time in asserting French rule. The locals resist their rule almost immediately. Napoleon knew that he did not fully understand the local culture, but he perhaps did not fully grasp just how different Egyptian society was from European society. He orders the population of the city disarmed, he implements military rule, and he makes all his orders in the name of the prophet, which he thinks is respecting their culture, but actually manages to offend their sensibilities quite a bit. And Napoleon has a problem even bigger than cultural misunderstandings, and that problem is that he has just brought 40,000 men with him to Egypt, and those soldiers need to be fed and sheltered and supplied, so how are you going to do that? Well, with money, of course, right? You can buy all those supplies. Remember all that money that he looted from Malta? That is how Napoleon is going to supply his troops. The only problem is, all that money is sitting at the bottom of the Mediterranean. Right after Napoleon lands, a British squadron under the leadership of one Horatio Nelson attacks the French fleet and completely destroys it. And with it goes down the treasure of Malta. And so now, how do you get money? You have to come in and as your first act as the new government, heavily increase the people's taxes. So you can imagine how that's going to go over. The locals are not thrilled. And so you have a classic insurgency scenario. I mean, this is just like the American invasion of Iraq. There are uprisings and rebellions. French soldiers are often found mysteriously stabbed to death. In fact, the rebellion is so widespread that the calls to prayer throughout the city of Cairo include calls to kill the French. But because the French themselves don't speak Arabic, they are listening and not reacting. They don't know. So every morning they hear people in Arabic saying, go out and kill the French. And they just have no idea. They're completely ignorant that this is what they're listening to. 
At the same time that Napoleon is dealing with these revolts and rebellions and his lack of funds, he receives word that his wife, Josephine, is cheating on him back in France. She had already been cheating on him, but this was the first time he was hearing about it. Josephine was a survivor who had been abandoned by her first husband, and she had learned to always hedge her bets. You never know when one man's favor might run dry, so you always need another patron waiting in the wings. And of course, there might have been more human reasons for it as well. Maybe she was just a lustful person. But it is notable that once Napoleon took supreme power in France and could afford to provide for her beyond any shadow of a doubt, she never betrayed him again. But for whatever reason, she is cheating on him and is becoming very well known in France, which is a huge embarrassment to him. And so he writes to her to question her about these allegations. And the ship carrying the letter is intercepted by the British, who published the news to the whole world. And so in the midst of all these difficulties, overnight, Napoleon becomes an international laughingstock. Two months after that, it becomes clear that the Ottomans were preparing to attack him. The Ottomans controlled a vast Middle Eastern empire. They nominally were supposed to control Egypt, although they kind of didn't because the empire was old and frail. And so really the local leaders, these Mamluks, uh, were the ones who were controlling Egypt. But the Ottomans, seeing the French come in and invade the territory that was supposed to be theirs, say, well, we can't stand up for this. We can't just let someone take our territory unopposed. And so uh, they prepare to attack Napoleon. And a month after that plague breaks out in Alexandria. It's just one horrible circumstance on top of another for Napoleon. The kind of thing that would drive a normal man to absolute despair. I want you to imagine yourself isolated in Egypt. The people are revolting. There are assassins all around you. A large empire is preparing an army to attack you. Your wife is cheating on you. You have no money and you have no way of getting yourself or your army home to France. I like to think of myself as a relatively resilient person. But I just know that if I was in this situation, it would have driven me to despondency. But Napoleon is not a normal person. When challenged, he almost never sank into lethargy or despondency. On the contrary, he tended to respond with aggression and activity. In fact, even at this time, Napoleon is more convinced than ever of his grand destiny. His pronouncements from this time verge on the self-delusional. He writes in one edict, quote, is there a man so blind as not to see that destiny itself guides all my operations? Is there anyone so faithless as to doubt that everything in this vast universe is bound to the empire of destiny? Whoa, <laughs> right? Whoa. In another, he writes, quote, it is as well you should know that all human efforts against me are useless for all I undertake must succeed. Those who declare themselves my allies prosper. Those who oppose me perish. Now, it is possible that he was just aping the stereotype of an oriental despot. He thought that this is what a pasha or a pharaoh would sound like. It's a very condescending attitude. And there definitely was this sort of chauvinistic attitude that uh, these ignorant Middle Easterners, all they understand is the iron fist. So I think that's part of it. But I actually do think that there was a certain amount of real legitimate grandiose self-belief as well. For example, that bit about his empire of destiny, destiny was not the language of a Middle Eastern despot. If he was trying to imitate Middle Eastern Sultan or something, he would have said, Allah guides my operations and I am building an empire of Allah. And he did say stuff like that from time to time, but he said destiny in this edict. Destiny guides all his operations that everything in the universe is bound to his empire of destiny. And so to me, that says this is like legitimate self-belief. Napoleon believed this, that destiny was guiding his every action and he couldn't be opposed. 
And also at the same time, I mentioned that the plague had returned to Egypt. Well, many of his soldiers are suffering from the plague and he goes into plague hospitals and he shakes the hands of soldiers who have the plague. He talks with them in person. He tends to them. He is, you know, taking cloths and wiping their brows like he has no fear that he will contract the plague because he believes so strongly in his destiny. He thinks, no, Napoleon can't get the plague. And I mean, in his defense, he doesn't. He doesn't contract the plague. So uh, make of that what you will. You know, maybe uh, this is this placebo effect that he believed so strongly in his health and vitality and destiny that his immune system responded to that. I don't know. But he, he in the midst of this difficult circumstances, maintains this unbelievable self-belief. It's an interesting juxtaposition that Napoleon has a never-ending knack for practical thinking. He could be very, very common sense most of the time, especially when it came time for battle. And yet also privately, he harbored this limitless universe of ambition and grandiosity. And it might seem odd for those two attributes to coexist, and yet they did in Napoleon. And they often do. We tend to sort of sort people into either practical or imaginative, but often the most imaginative people are often very practical as well. Well, as I said, in the midst of crisis, Napoleon loves to be proactive. And so he decides that he is going to preemptively attack the Ottomans before they can assemble an army and come to Egypt and attack him. And so he assembles his army and he leaves Egypt and he goes up into modern day Palestine and Israel, that area, and attacks some cities there. And the preemptive strike against the Ottomans is something of a debacle. He wins any engagements in the open field. And there are a few of those. They're kind of minor, but he wins a few battles. But he's unable to besiege any of the Ottoman cities and forts. And that is because cannons are very difficult to drag through sand. And when he tries to send them via boat, they're intercepted by the British. So he doesn't have any artillery for a siege. And so he kind of has to come back to Egypt with his tail between his legs. Now, fortunately for him, Egypt is very defensible. Anytime the British and the Ottomans try to land an invasion force, he's able to repel them very easily. So he's the master of Egypt. And he's able to defend it, but he's also a prisoner there, unable to press his advantage anywhere else. At this time, Napoleon also begins to receive word that France is back at war with Austria and a coalition of other European powers. And Austria has retaken Italy, undoing all the hard work he had done there. And France itself is now once again under threat from external invasion. So Napoleon decides that I can't really do any good here. And it sounds like I'm really needed back in France. So he sneaks off and takes a ship back home to France. And I mean, really sneaks off. He doesn't even tell his immediate subordinate who's going to be taking over for him until after he leaves. He, he writes him a letter, says, you're in charge now. And he boards just a very small ship. And uh, he's actually very lucky. He very easily could have been captured by the British. But somehow, you know, I guess it's destiny once again. But he sneaks through and does manage to make his way back to France. Egypt was an important training ground for Napoleon. It fueled his dreams of becoming a great man in history like Caesar and Alexander. It gave him another experience of absolute rule. It also showed him some of his limitations. For the French, it had somewhat disrupted British trade, but more than anything, it was a waste of tens of thousands of soldiers at a time when they desperately needed them because they were at war in Europe once again. When Napoleon landed in southern France, he was met with a hero's welcome. News was slow to travel from North Africa to Europe. All the French public knew was that Napoleon, the glorious hero of Italy, had conquered Egypt and expanded French control to an exotic cradle of civilization. The reports of his setbacks and failures had yet to arrive. There were plays performed that celebrated his victories and pamphlets written that extolled Napoleon's virtues. But how long until those same plays and pamphlets began to mock him? 
It was Napoleon's moment, but he knew that moment wouldn't last long because it wouldn't be too long until the truth would catch up to him. Now, as he arrived, the government in Paris was teetering. Economic conditions were bad. The international situation was even worse with foreign armies on France's doorstep. And seemingly every element of society from the far left to the far right was opposed to the current government. Napoleon immediately becomes involved in a pre-existing plot to overthrow this government. Conspiracies were everywhere, but the one he becomes involved with was the most fully developed. The French government was called the Directory because it was led by a council of five men called the Directory, Directory Five Guys. And one of those directors, his name was Siez. And he thinks that the form of government of the French Republic is stopping him from passing needed reform. He's sort of an elder statesman figure and thinks that he can turn things around. And so this coup really revolves around Siez. But he brings in Napoleon because he's a popular war hero who he figures the public will be enthusiastic about. And he thinks Napoleon will be able to bring some much needed muscle because of his involvement with the army. The plot is hatched in the utmost secrecy. The days of the terror with its thousands of executions were gone, but purges and executions were still alarmingly common. If the coup were to fail, best case scenario, Napoleon and his co-conspirators would be exiled, but more likely they'd be executed. On November 9th, the plot was sprung into action. Napoleon's brother Lucien was a key member of the French parliament, which was called the councils. Napoleon, ironically, has Lucien tell the councils that there was a dangerous plot to overthrow the government, and for their own safety, they needed to be moved outside of Paris so that they couldn't be you know, captured and overtaken. So they take them to a suburb called St. Cloud, and there Lucien and Napoleon try to convince them that the government is in danger, that the current system needs to be abolished because this is an emergency, and a new government established with Siez and Napoleon at the head. What the plotters did not count on was that the councils resisted Lucien and Napoleon's arguments that they should submit. And so they turn on them and actually begin to turn violent as Napoleon is giving one of these speeches. So Lucien and Napoleon escape the blows of these elected officials by the skin of their teeth. You know, they're getting pelted and, and hit and punched and they run out of this hall where they're having their big meeting and they go outside and there are soldiers there, but they're not necessarily loyal to Napoleon. Their charge is to protect the councils. Lucien gives the speech of his life he tells the soldiers that Napoleon has been the target of an assassination, that the councils have abdicated their duty and have turned on the French people. The soldiers are not quite convinced. They look at Lucien and Napoleon skeptically, thinking it kind of looks like a coup to us. And Lucien draws his sword and points it at Napoleon's chest and tells the soldiers that he would kill his own brother if he were a traitor. The soldiers are convinced by this and go in and clear the halls of the legislators effectively dissolving their parliament. Though Napoleon would claim that it was a peaceful transfer of power from the councils and the directory to himself, the reality is that he had dissolved the government and taken power himself. The plotters, Siez and Napoleon, were now masters of France. Napoleon articulated the reason for their coup when he wrote, quote, What have you done with the France I left in such glory? I left peace and I find war. I left victories and I find defeats. I left millions from Italy and I find it squandered by laws and misery. Where are the 100,000 men who disappeared from French soil? They are dead and they were my companions in arms. This state of things cannot continue. And so it's basically an appeal to prosperity and to security and to return to sane governance. Now, Siez imagined himself as a great elder statesman. He imagined that he would be the one to both write the new constitution 
and serve as the chief executive of it. And Napoleon couldn't immediately challenge that because he was the one who had been at the top of the government. He'd been in the directory and he had been the one to hatch the plot and Napoleon had joined it later. So for now, he has to maintain the picture of unity of this new government. But Napoleon was not about to defer to anyone else or to share power. As we saw previously, he believed strongly in unity of command and he believed strongly in himself. So what he did was cleverly manipulate procedures to make sure that the constitution centralized power while maintaining a fig leaf of democratic governance. And he made sure that he was the one at the center of that government. Siez was old. He didn't have nearly the energy that Napoleon did. Napoleon was the one who was in every committee meeting, making suggestions and edits, discouraging certain initiatives, keeping their form and gutting their power when necessary, introducing new initiatives that favored his thoughts and ideas, making relationships, making friendships, brokering deals. And so in the end, the government has kind of the form that Siez had imagined, but internally it's completely gutted. It's completely different. Siez's idea was to mimic the Romans who had two consuls leading the government at any time, but instead to have three consuls in charge of the French government. Napoleon modified this slightly to make it so that one consul would be preeminent, the first consul, and that the first consul would rotate between the three consuls. Okay, so does that make sense? Yeah, three people leading the government, the three consuls, and at any one time, one of them is going to be called the first consul. It's kind of the first among equals. And then that's going to rotate who's in charge. So you got three consuls. And so for a few years, it'll be one. And then, you know, it switches and then it's the other and then it's the other. And so, of course, Napoleon says, look, guys, it's going to rotate. I'll start. I'll go first. Don't worry. And so uh, he serves as the first first consul. And you might not be surprised to learn that no one else would ever hold the honor. One of my big takeaways from this episode is that if you are going to lead an organization, you always need unity of command. But if you come into a situation where you can't have that unity of command, maybe the board insists on co-CEOs or a powerful senior vice president or something like that, then you need to have a clear plan coming in for how you will consolidate control and marginalize those competing with you for power. That is something that you see also in the life of Julius Caesar. I mentioned that the Romans had two consuls serve at the same time. Well, when Caesar was made consul, he was elected with a man named Bibulus. And in short order, Caesar marginalized him so thoroughly that Bibulus had no power whatsoever. And people jokingly referred to it as the consulship of, instead of Caesar and Bibulus, they call it the consulship of Julius and Caesar. The joke was, he was really the only consul. So Napoleon was the first consul. Now the question was, what would he do? As usual, he's an unstoppable ball of motion and energy. Here's how Andrew Roberts describes the start of his rule as first consul. Quote, in less than 15 weeks, Napoleon effectively ended the French Revolution, gave France a new constitution, established her finances on a sound footing, muzzled the opposition press, started to end both rural brigandage and the long-running war in the Vendée, set up a Senate, tribunate, legislative body, and consul d'état, rebuffed the Bourbons, made spurned peace offers to Britain and Austria, reorganized French local government, and inaugurated the Banque de France. But despite all this, France's army was still losing on the battlefield. No one could replace Napoleon at what he did best. There's a great quote from Napoleon about what you must do when you take power. He said, a newly born government must dazzle and astonish. When it ceases to do that, it fails. And he was about to dazzle and astonish where he was best. The first consul was returning to war. Now, in order to understand what happens next, you need to know a little bit about the geography of the area. France and Italy have a history of warfare going back thousands of years, literally to the time of Julius Caesar, who invaded modern-day France from Rome. 
probably before that too. And there are really only two ways to get back and forth. You can go next to the coast through a region called Piedmont, and it's nice flat plains the whole way, perfect for marching your troops. And this is the route that 99% of armies take. To the north, you have Switzerland and the Alps, and the Alps, of course, are very high, very treacherous mountains. It's nearly impossible to cross them with an army. It's incredibly risky. A bad snowstorm or a landslide can stop your army in its tracks and deal an enormous amount of damage very quickly. There were only two famous crossings of the Alps. One had happened a thousand years previously and the other 2000 years previously. Hannibal Barca crossed the Alps when he attacked Rome and Charlemagne had invaded Northern Italy through the Alps. Now there would be a third. Napoleon, being the master organizer and planner that he was, managed to pull it off. There are incredibly thin roads and incredibly high passes, bad weather, obstacles, enemies, but through it all, he manages to overcome every obstacle and get his army from France to Italy through these little mountain passes that go through the Alps. He shows up out of nowhere behind the Austrians, and at first they can't believe it. They think it must just be a small detachment. Napoleon wrote back to his brother, quote, We have struck like lightning. The enemy wasn't expecting anything like it and can hardly believe it. Great events are going to take place. Now, Napoleon was seeking out a quick, decisive victory, because despite all of his reforms, the government was still not in a good spot. These things take time to have an effect, and the fact of the matter is, his government was new and fragile, assassins were seeking him out at every turn, the consular government could still very easily fail, especially with its leader away at war, and so he wanted to charge in, get a decisive victory, and then make peace and get home to consolidate his rule. So he goes charging after the Austrians, and he assumes that they will run from him. After all, this is Napoleon. He had done a big campaign in Italy before, and he had beaten the Austrians every single time, so he assumes they don't want to fight. So when the Austrians begin to retreat, he splits his army to take different routes to search them out. But this was an act of hubris. In fact, the Austrians had only feigned retreat and had turned to face him. And so when he encounters Austrian forces near the Italian town of Marengo, he immediately engages them, thinking that it's just a small detachment, a rear guard of the Austrian army sent to slow him down. The fighting starts in earnest around 9 a.m., and by 10 a.m., Napoleon realizes that he has made a horrible mistake. He has 22,000 men and 15 cannons, compared to the Austrians' 30,000 men and 100 cannons. He immediately sends word for the other detachment of his army under General Desai to return as quickly as possible. The strategy for the battle isn't that difficult to understand. The Austrians attack on all fronts, and the French dig in to defend as best they can as Napoleon waits for Desai. Nevertheless, the French are constantly being dislodged and forced to retreat little by little. It is only the excellent leadership of Napoleon that keeps his men in the field at all. One officer recalled, quote, The consul seemed to brave death and to be near it, for the bullets were seen more than once to drive up the ground between his horse's legs. One of Napoleon's maxims was, More battles are lost by loss of hope, and loss of blood. And so this is one of his main jobs that day, making sure that his men don't lose hope. And one way he does that is by exuding cool confidence. And around 4 p.m., his men are finally so weary from a full day of fighting and retreating that they are just ready to break and run. Their nerves are totally frayed. And it's at that moment that he looks out and can see the dust rising from Desai's division returning to help them. And he coolly says to his officers, I think we've gone back far enough today. The Austrians are also exhausted, but they are prepared for one more charge to rout Napoleon, drive him from the battlefield, and win the day's battle. So they form up and charge on all fronts, 
But when they get there, they find not the bloodied and exhausted troops of Napoleon, but Desai's fresh reinforcements. Desai's men countercharge the Austrians, and the battlefield that had taken them a full day to win is lost in less than an hour. The French casualties were nearly comparable to those of the Austrians. They had lost 5,000 men compared to the Austrians' 6,000. But the French had taken the field, scattered their enemy, and captured an additional 8,000 men. Napoleon entered into negotiations with the Austrians on a peace deal less than 24 hours later. The treaty returned the whole of Italy to France, expanded French territory once again, and most importantly, gave France a break from constant war. Napoleon could return to Paris now a greater hero than ever, with a blank check to do basically whatever he would like. This was even more true when Napoleon signed another peace a year later with England. This is called the Peace of Amiens. And now in 1802, France was, for the first time since the revolution, no longer at war. Napoleon used the opportunity to reform and rationalize French society along his own ideals. He completely reformed the laws governing every element of society in something called the Civil Code, often referred to as the Napoleonic Code. It was an audacious and highly successful attempt to make the laws of France more transparent, more modern, and more uniform across its many regions. If you can imagine, it had been thousands of years since there had been a blank slate attempt to totally redo all the laws. Over the years, you have all these regions that sometimes are in France, sometimes are outside of it. They have their own local customs and you have uh, all these laws building up. And so you can imagine as you travel across France, you have all these different regional variations. Some of these laws go back to Roman times. Um, some of them were dictated by the Catholic Church. Some of them were not enforced in certain areas and were enforced in others. It was just a chaotic jumble of all these different laws and regulations. So he just wanted to make it more clear, more rational, more uniform. And it was extremely effective in this regard. Um, it served as the basis for French law up until the present day, and it was copied by many of the countries around him. He also at this time drops the title of first consul and makes himself consul for life. Siez is completely sidelined now, and it is very obvious to everyone that France is now, for all intents and purposes, a monarchy, albeit a more restrained one that still maintains appearances of Republican and revolutionary ideals. But even those begin to loosen over time. As time goes on, month after month, Napoleon begins to introduce more and more regal trappings and flourishes. He's moving into old palaces associated with the French monarchy. He's bringing back large retinues of servants and liveries. The costumes and uniforms for him and his court are getting more and more elaborate. There is a reintroduction of court etiquette. And after little more than a year of rule as consul for life, Napoleon is ready to drop the pretenses entirely and take his place as a monarch at the head of a French empire. Now, importantly, he wasn't going to name himself king because that was too reminiscent of the Bourbons, of the people who had come before the revolution. And it would make people say, what was all of this for? You know, we had a king, we go through this revolution, and now it's just, we have a king again? Now, he wants to hearken back to Roman times, right? To say, no, 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 we're like the Romans. You know, we had a republic and now we're going to have an empire. I'm going to be your emperor. And that's okay because, yes, it's an empire, but it still carries forward some of these Roman enlightened revolutionary ideas that are going to be at the heart of it. So as I detailed at the beginning of this episode, on December 2nd, 1804, Napoleon crowns himself as the emperor of France in the Cathedral of Notre Dame. There has been a lot of speculation over the years over why. Why Napoleon would want to become emperor. Because after all, France had just gone through a revolution to overthrow their king and the old aristocracy. And now they've got a new monarch and a new aristocracy. And Napoleon himself was not an opponent of that revolution. He was actually a 
full-throated supporter of the French Revolution. He was a Jacobin. He was part of the far-left party in the Revolution. This is not the person who you would expect to say, actually, the problem with the last monarchy is it wasn't big enough. You know, we needed not a king, but an emperor. So uh, it seems to be backwards from what you would think. And furthermore, people were pretty happy with the consulship, right? Um, it didn't have any monarchical trappings. And so it allowed the left to kind of cover their eyes and cover their ears and say, oh, no, this isn't a monarchy. You know, this is a, a republic. This is a revolutionary government led by a consul, right? It gave that fig leaf. And all the people who had fought and died for the revolution allowed them to think that they had fought and died for something. So why do away with the consulship? And the primary reason given at the time was to ensure the succession. Napoleon was still plagued by assassination attempts. Many people thought that if they could just kill Napoleon, they could radically change the government of France. And a hereditary succession would make assassinations less likely because an assassination fundamentally wouldn't change anything the succession would pass seamlessly to a family member who presumably would have much the same outlook as Napoleon. And so it decreases the incentives for an assassination. And yet that explanation doesn't quite pass muster because the succession was anything but clear. He still didn't have a son of his own. All his brothers were unfit to serve for one reason or another. There was no clear successor at the time when Napoleon became emperor. Other reasons put forward include to make his regime seem more permanent, and to make sure that he could negotiate with other kings and emperors on equal footing. And maybe all of these played into it to one degree or another. I think there's some validity there, but I think it came down to this. Napoleon crowned himself emperor because he wanted to. Napoleon was a man of many contradictions, and one of those contradictions was that he was one of the most rational men to have ever lived, but he was also one of the most impulsive and emotional. He described his mind as a perfectly rational machine at times, they could control at his will. Here's how he described it. He said, different subjects and different affairs are arranged in my head as in a cupboard. When I wish to interrupt one train of thought, I shut that drawer and open another. Do I wish to sleep? I simply close all the drawers and there I am, asleep. One of his staff phrased it a little differently. He said, quote, we all admired the strength of mind and the facility with which he could take off or fix the whole force of his attention on whatever he pleased. And so it's this perfectly ordered, perfectly rational mind right? And yet he was intensely impulsive. He graduated from school early because he couldn't stand it and joined the artillery rather than the Navy just to avoid staying in school. He couldn't stand babbling parliamentary politics and couldn't hold back his disdain even when it almost cost him his life when speaking to the French assembly, the councils. And so I think the coronation is another example of that. Napoleon wanted to make himself emperor and he could. So he did. So that's where we're going to end it for here. Tune in for part two to hear how Napoleon rises even further to become the master of an empire, not just that expands France, but comes to cover almost the entire continent of Europe and how he falls and how he loses all of that power. But for now, let's get into some lessons. What can we learn so far from the life of Napoleon? The first thing is the unity of command. Take it by any means necessary, right? You, you have to have that unity of command if you're going to be successful. And so if you can't have it at first, you need to have a serious plan for consolidating control and making sure that your orders are obeyed and that your organization is going to follow a single vision. The next is decisiveness. You know, if you think about some of these early victories of Napoleon, you think about Lodi, what is it? We have to cross a bridge. And so we do whatever it takes to cross the bridge. You think about Marengo, 
what is it? We're being attacked and we just have to dig in and hold on until reinforcements can arrive. You think about the Battle of the Pyramids. Okay, we just have to march straight through the Egyptian desert and take on this army and easily beat them. Like there's not a lot of strategic complexity to these victories. The, the reason that Napoleon won them is not because of his brilliance, although he was brilliant and that's something we'll see later on, but more just because he had a simple plan that he executed very decisively and immediately. He was fast, he was efficient, and he was intense with his execution. And so I think that's one of the big things is his decisiveness, even more than his strategic brilliance. The third thing is that he was a master of details. Remember, he was le petit corporal. He is a big, powerful general, but he understands his cannons and how they should be positioned and his the situation of his men's shoes and their uniforms and how they're being paid. And so it's not enough to have strategic vision. You have to understand how that strategic vision is implemented at the tactical level. And what that means, you have to have that mastery of all those little details. That's another element of what allowed Napoleon to be so successful is he was such a master of details. Another thing is his quote, that more battles are lost by loss of hope than loss of blood. Momentum is everything. You have to keep the people under you, whether those are soldiers or employees, believing that things are going to get better, that you're going to win. And so learning to inspire that hope is one of the first and most important jobs of a leader. Of course, another thing that I took away is one of his most defining personal attributes, which is just his energy. He had this boundless energy. He was always moving, always going forward. And if you're going to be successful, you have to find a domain that gives you that energy where you can feel like you could go all day and keep working and working. Uh, that's part of what made him so successful. Another thing that I'll take away is just his unbelievable self-belief. You know, you think back to some of those quotes about, you know, all my enemies perish and all of my allies prosper. You know, he talks so much about destiny and he was always putting himself in harm's way. There are a thousand times that he could have been killed in battle. Bullets were always whizzing right around him. Cannonballs were just barely missing him. And he had this just immense self-belief that he had a destiny. And I think that belief in a destiny that you're meant for something is really crucial to achieving great things. If there is one word that is going to stick with me from this episode, it is destiny. And I think really internalizing destiny can clarify a lot for someone. And then the last lesson I took away is that you are responsible for everything, except no limitations, except no rules of the game. You are playing a limitless game. Every rule is negotiable. So if you come into a situation where, you know, you're dealt a losing hand, change the hand, get new cards. And that was Napoleon's approach, right? Oh, I come here and I'm actually not even in charge of the siege of Toulon. I'm just the artillery commander and my artillery sucks. Well, most people just say, this is the artillery you're given, but not Napoleon. He says, I'm going to go into nearby towns. I'm going to ask people, hey, do you have any extra cannons? I'm going to repair stuff. I'm going to manufacture new stuff and do everything it takes. I'm going to challenge the assumptions of what I've been given. And I think that's really powerful. Challenge the hand that you've been dealt. If you've been dealt a bad hand, get dealt a better hand. You are responsible for everything that happens to you. And when you take that approach, it's very clarifying and it's very empowering. And that's what Napoleon did. So that's it for this episode. Tune in next time to hear the exciting conclusion to the life of Napoleon Bonaparte. In the meantime, thank you for listening to How to Take Over the World.